Welcome to The Human Perspective, a podcast with the internationally recognized badass disability rights activist, Judy Human. My name is Devin S. Turk. I'm a disability self-advocate, writer, and college student currently interning with Kylie and Judy of The Human Perspective. This episode, Judy talks with Vesper Moore. Vesper is a psychiatric survivor, mad movement activist, and intentional peer support specialist. You can find links to their own podcast, Get Mad with Vesper Moore, as well as the other resources mentioned in the description of this episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Human Perspective. Today, I am interviewing Vesper Moore. Vesper had invited me a number of months ago to be on their podcast, which is called Get Mad. And I really enjoyed doing it. And at the end of it, Kylie and I were discussing, well, let's see if we have an opportunity to invite Vesper onto our program. And so here we are today. Welcome to our program, Vesper. Thank you for having me, Judy. Can you explain a little bit about the show that you're currently doing? Absolutely. So Get Mad with Vesper Moore really started from the space of being a psychiatric survivor, a mad person, and a disabled person, because I'm, I'm someone who has tachycardia and a few different um, heart conditions. I, I really grew a, an appreciation for this idea of the, the the social model of disability and really saw that there was this almost like a disconnection between the wider psychiatric survivor movement and the disability rights movement. Being part of both of these spaces, I was like, wouldn't it be great to have a podcast that's, that's centered around celebrating identities as they relate to mental health and otherwise, more particularly as a way of subverting and defying the paradigm of mental health when we talk about like, oh, what does it mean to have an experience where you are hearing voices or experiencing another state of mind? What is it like when people think that you are too unstable and dangerous to function in society? Because I think when we talk about the identity of uh, folks with mental health conditions, psychosocial disabilities, something that is often missed is this idea that um, the context of disability rights is different because there's an inherent perception of danger with the person. So the Get Mad podcast was really as a means of how do we explore the difference and similarities of a lot of these experiences? How do we talk about the need for system reform or conversations around abolition or critical conversations around celebrating identity and also civil rights in the context of mental health? Because often mental health ends up siloed in this idea of care. And the care is extremely important and the healthcare system is extremely important in that context. But we don't talk enough about the rights of, of folks because I think because the disability is invisible, right? And is often left out of the conversation. So this podcast was a means of building that bridge, uh, I think, between mental health activism and mental health liberation in so many contexts with other social justice movements. You know, I started to become more knowledgeable about the psychiatric survivor movement really in the 1970s. The audience knows that I grew up in Brooklyn and I was there till I was about 25, then went out to Berkeley, getting involved with the Berkeley Center for Independent Living. 
which establishes one of its precepts, wanting to become a cross-disability organization. And I was lucky in those years to start meeting a number of people, gentlemen by the name of Howie the Harp, who was a psychiatric survivor and also had a physical disability and was highly respected in the Berkeley community, but also nationally. And a wonderful woman, Sally Zinman, who also worked in the psychiatric survivor movement, set up a great organization that was a support center for people who were defining themselves as psychiatric survivors. And Judy Chamberlain, who was both a psychiatric survivor, but also a leader in the national movement, strengthening the voices of people who were psychiatric survivors, but also involved in research and doing some very good work, working with the community as well as professionals. So what was very important to me in listening to what you were just saying is, you know, the recognition that many of us didn't know people who were psychiatric survivors. So it was very important to be expanding the disability rights movement to be inclusive of all. So really linking up with this community has been very important. You talk about your disability and being a psychiatric survivor. How do you identify yourself? Are you a psychiatric survivor with a disability? Are you a disabled person who is a psychiatric survivor? Do you think about that at all? Yeah, it's it's been an interesting journey for me because I am an autistic person as well. And the, the thing is, is that I had always known it as a person with autism when talking about my experience more, more widely and being a brown autistic person being perceived as violent when I was younger and really the, the intersection of those two experiences, right? But later receiving psychiatric diagnoses like schizoaffective disorder, being put on risperidone, and a lot of these different experiences, I really went into a disability rights organizing through the psychiatric survivor movement. That was like my start. So I started identifying as a psychiatric survivor. I'd say before identifying as a psychiatric survivor, I first identified as a person with mental illness. And I think something that is so controversial and important about the statement of identifying as mentally ill or with mental illness is that people can identify with mental illness. It's super important, you know, for people to have that freedom of identity. And then there are other people who recognize that the label, you know, deeming people the mentally ill, getting the mentally ill off the streets, getting the mentally ill, this has been um, used as a way to really uh, refer, minimize, and erase a lot of our experiences. So later on in life, I was like, okay, identify as a psychiatric survivor. But what does that mean for like the actual experiences that, you know, can be emotionally distressing, but like also beautiful at times where I might think of things outside of the box. Like I'm an artist. I do a lot of drawing, sculpting, photography, and a lot of that creativity, I think, you know, is very much related to my, my disorders. So a big part of that too was like, okay, so how do I identify with that? And then later I learned about mad pride, which was something, uh, you know, Judy was, was really great about uplifting as well as Howie. Judy Chamberlain. Yeah. Judy Chamberlain. Yes. And I, I think an important part of mad pride is the idea of celebrating states of mind, celebrating states of being, 
And, you know, kind of stepping away from this idea that there is a conventional state of mind, state of body, right? Or that there is something wrong with us, you know, inherently getting away from those ideas and rather focusing on society needs to be both accessible to us, but also foster and appreciate, you know, us as well. Um, and, and the beauty of, of, of who we are. Vesper, could you define mad liberation or the mad movement? What does mad mean? Totally. Yes, yes. Mad is a socio-political identity, similar to queer or queerness, similar to to a lot of the the other disability identities that that we hear, you know, um, in terms that we reclaim. And what mad means is really a way of perceiving and understanding different states out of like what we would deem the norm or the convention in our society, and a way of subverting and defying what it means to be normal, what it means to be conventional, or in a conventional state of mind. Thank you very much. I think partly you've been discussing uh, issues around stigma and the impact of stigma on disability community overall, but in this area, people who identify as uh, psychiatric survivors. How has stigma impacted you? And how do you, both as an individual and then in a broader context, work on reducing stigma? I mean, I think for me, there's, there's stigma and discrimination. And we see a lot of that discrimination now arising in New York and California with street sweeps and you know people with mental health diagnoses. And I think more particularly, when I talk about how it's impacted me in my life, I immediately think of my schizoaffective diagnosis and and how that came about, more particularly because Black and brown people are four to five times more likely in the United States to be diagnosed with schizophrenia than white people are. And when I talk about that experience of being a brown person diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, the way in which I was treated and the way in which my diagnosis followed me into different spaces, a very important part of my story. So a few years ago, I had an experience where I was attacked by someone and it was, it was a near-death experience. Um, I, I was stabbed. And that experience in particular, it was, it was less the traumatic experience that had happened to me as a teenager at that time. Um, and it was more the experience of how my family reacted, how my providers reacted, how when I was at a hospital, you know, in, in central Massachusetts, receiving treatment that my family was talking about me, literally without me, they surrounded me. And they were like, what are we going to do with Vesper? Where is Vesper going to live? I feel like we, we've exhausted all of our, our options in terms of mental health supports and, and what Vesper needs, you know? So the the difficulty of that experience i think is, is something that's so important is the fact that more often than not when we see this this um unknowing discrimination or the discrimination of the well-meaning it, it it really erupts with okay you can't help yourself so let me help you so the incident that you're discussing was a random incident yes it was a random incident so did people believe that you had something to do with the incident? Yeah. So my family thought I was being very reckless in the situation because I was at a friend's house um, drinking when this had happened. And then 
after it was discussing with police the details of what happened because with circumstances like this you do have to talk to police and when talking to the police officers they were trying to hint or try to get the information of did you do this to yourself uh, we noticed you have a history of suicide did you do this to yourself and it was a complicated situation really because I didn't do it to myself and trying to prove it to police was a really really hard circumstance so overall, when we look at the issue of stigma, would you say that stigma uh, significantly impedes people's uh, willingness to discuss such things as depression, anxiety, bipolar, other psychosocial disabilities, which are normal parts of their lives and need to be discussed? And do you do any work on that area of helping people to disclose? I think... A big part of that work has been supporting people in realizing how in which they are being thought of or treated differently because of their diagnosis or because of their history of mental health. I think it's, it's hard for folks to get there because I think people often assume there's something wrong with me. I am, I am, you know, not well, I messed up. Like people think in that context pretty frequently when I support them or, or advocate with them. And I think one of the things that's, that's difficult about that is, is that there's almost an unlearning about needing to understand how in which society thinks about people with mental health conditions and, and how we are labeled and thought of and how even our own family, you know, people that we love and hold dearly might think of us as different as well. In the context of depression and anxiety, I think it's an assumed fragility, right? People assume that you're too fragile to, to handle this piece of information. Maybe it's, it's uh, you know, your parents are divorcing and, oh, you're, you're too fragile to handle that information. I have to think about how to talk to you about this. I have to think about how to, how to work with this. And it, it changes the level of authenticity and the nature of your relationship with the person because, because of that assumption of fragility, danger, and being unable. Do you find that the whole concept of peer support, people with similar disabilities, being able to support each other. Has that been valuable for you? Yeah, it's actually, it's how I became involved with, uh, with, with the psychiatric survivor movement was through peer support. You know, I was aware of the disability rights movement and pretty knowledgeable of it because I think even though less mainstream notoriety, you see the disability rights movement in a lot of different contexts, you know, and in our wider society. Whereas with the, the psychiatric survivor movement, you know, even speaking out that you've survived something as a result of the psychiatric system or the mental health industrial complex is a, is a controversial statement. It, it wasn't until being involved in peer support where, where I learned about, you know, the different ideas of being a change agent, being in but not of the system, um, supporting your community first, supporting each other, right? Those are the roles of peer support and peer support community. But what I think was so important is, is seeing uh, crisis alternatives as well through, through peer support, such as peer respite. What is peer respite? Peer respite is a 24-7 uh, crisis alternative to hospitalization. 
It is uh, a house more often than not that is staffed by people in peer support roles, disabled people, mad people, psychiatric survivors, right? And supporting each other. The people who come in manage their own medication. They stay as long as they would like. Generally, it's five to seven days, sometimes up to 30 in some special circumstances. I oversee two peer respites in Massachusetts, one named Kariah Peer Respite and one named Juniper Peer Respite. And those resources are, are, are invaluable, you know, in, in terms of us supporting each other and getting the work done, because that's an important piece, community care. How are these uh, organizations supported financially? Sometimes they're funded by the state. Sometimes they're, they're funded through Medicaid. Sometimes they're funded through foundations and grants and crowdfunding sources. But there isn't, I, I find, like just a singular source of funding that is like, okay, these organizations are, um, or these initiatives are earmarked for funding, for consistent funding, you know? So I think that that's an important piece as well. Um, it, it would be great to see more initiatives with those of us who are most impacted taking the leadership from the inception, the design, the creation, and the continuing community work. Maybe we could talk a little bit about what you see as the value of these programs versus uh, psychiatric institutions? Mm, that's very important. I mean, when going into a psychiatric institution, when being involuntarily committed, there is a obvious history of warehousing and disappearing people. That's a very important thing that I think we know about. And right now, we see a trend of what I like to call reinstitutionalization happening across the country. The consumer survivor ex-patient ex-inmate movement emerged from deinstitutionalization in the ways that it did and led to the creation of peer support in the mental health system and in other systems, right, and within the community. So some of the benefits of these approaches is, is, is one, being entirely staffed by disabled people, by mad people, by psychiatric survivors, trauma survivors. I think the other benefits as well is that people really take charge about what they want for themselves. More often than not, when someone's going into a resource like a peer respite, they recommend themselves. They're not referred by a provider or by someone else, but rather they've, they've decided, they've understood that this resource would be great for them while they're having a really hard time. I think another, another piece as well is, is that when someone does go into a psych institution, you can have your medication adjusted. You have treatment team meetings where your family and providers uh, make a lot of decisions for you, whereas the primary tenet of these environments is self-determination, being person-created as well as person-centered. You're doing work with the Baslon Center. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. What is the Baslon Center? What are you doing with them? Well, the Baslon Center for Mental Health Law is a law center that does some incredible, incredible work. They're a great group. Yeah, for a lot of folks in the disability rights movement, for psychiatric survivors. My work with Baslon more often than not has been building coalitions and networks of, of psychiatric survivors and disabled folks to work together and collaborate and fight against a lot of uh, these pervasive initiatives that have been emerging. More particularly recently, myself and the Bazelon team, we, we wrote a letter 
really speaking out against Mayor Eric Adams' mental health directive in New York City. And, and Judy, you and I were a part of a national coalition fighting against one of the things that are happening right now with HHC Tlevsky and that case that has emerged from out of Indiana and was recently presented to the Supreme Court. So, I mean, you, you have one case that challenges uh, the right of disabled people to sue Medicaid-funded organizations and um, sue based on what has happened in terms of a violation of our individual rights. You also have another circumstance that seeks to institutionalize unhoused people on the streets that doesn't look too different from ugly laws. Yeah having disabled people hide themselves from the public view, having unhoused people who are deemed unsightly stay away from the public view. It's a repetition in a lot of ways. So, so my work with Bazelon has been widely advocacy, fighting a lot of these issues across the country. Are there people in the psychiatric community, healthcare providers, et cetera, that the MAD movement uh, psychiatric survivors work with? Yeah, there are a lot of different organizations that I think work with and support a lot of these these initiatives. I think the level of public support varies depending on whether or not the organization feels that the issue that we might be challenging might, might not be one that they want to be challenging, right? Because sometimes, uh, you know, more often than not, some of this advocacy can involve pharmaceutical industries, uh, private companies, states that might be funding some of these initiatives. So, so, so there's a lot of challenges along the way. But with that being said, there's a lot of provider agencies, law centers, advocacy um, organizations, uh, peer support organizations, um, independent living centers, and, and medical providers that do support and sign on to these initiatives. Most notably, I think there are different chapters of different organizations, because when we look at um, the mental health directive in New York um, and what's happening there, you know, NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, they've been doing a lot of great work. In, in organizing some of these rallies, along with communities for police reform and the uh, New York Psychiatric Rehabilitation Association. So all of these, these organizations are doing this work collaboratively and together, in addition to being provider organizations and doing the great work there. When we look at California and a lot of the work out in California, you know, it, you have organizations like Disability Rights California that has been fighting the issue of the care court, which is a very similar to the mental health directive that has happened in New York. The care court is more specifically Governor Newsom and having unhoused people, you know, being involuntarily committed. It's a similar trend. I think what's clearly evolving is that the work in the disability community, psychiatric survivor community, et cetera, some people are really recognizing the importance of community-based supports and the harmfulness that can go on in institutions, many of which, you know, we've seen the catastrophes of what has happened to people. So for me, it's discouraging to see what mayors and other government officials are attempting to do because of the failure to provide appropriate housing and other supports to look at getting people off the street and putting them in a situation which for many could be quite detrimental. And really, I think, gives completely the wrong message to our societies about what we need to be doing to help ensure that people can be living in the community in dignity. 
Were you ever involved in this psychiatric system? Oh, yes, yes. A part of my story is, is uh, you know, for, for four years, I was in and out of institutions in Massachusetts. I was inpatient at Worcester State Hospital for a period of time. I spent some time um, through, through a few different UMass inpatient facilities and many other spaces. And I think for me, what was particularly jarring at the time was that a lot of these services that were supposed to help me really instead sought to keep me silent. So I was labeled as non-compliant within my notes and, and in a lot of spaces. And the reason why was often I would speak out for other folks who were on the unit as well as myself. I think, you know, advocacy, self-advocacy and advocating with others is really frowned upon in psychiatric inpatient units because you have that layer of discrimination, that perception of danger and the idea of social control that is inherent. I think we have to also look at the foundations of psychiatric institutions historically. I mean, you have the, the Hiawatha Asylum for Insane Indians that institutionalized uh, 300 Native Americans and labeled them with diagnoses like horse-stealing mania simply for the pure fact of disappearing them and taking them away from their land. You have the Detroit riots and labeling Black people with schizophrenia, and then their notes reading that it was because of their involvement with the civil rights movement. So there's a caution here as well of like, it isn't just folks who are struggling with their mental health. Whether or not you identify with that or not, your, your, your struggle is tied. It is, it is tied. It is interconnected with ours. And the reason why is, is that you very easily could be someone who's advocating for themselves, who's going through a lot in their life, and you can end up in an institution and have your rights stripped away. How would you say the system is set up to assist someone who would like to be able to get some peer support to reach out to people who are having similar experiences? What do you advise them and how do you reach them? Mm. It's an interesting thing I find with peer support, peer supporters in Massachusetts, they're called peer specialists In other states, sometimes they're called certified peer recovery specialists or otherwise. And some states have, have taken to hiring peer specialists who are working in, in state roles um, as state employees, as well as funding drop-in centers and community initiatives that are led by peer supporters. But then you, you also see peer supporters that come from different initiatives that are, that, that are community funded. You see peer supporters on integrated teams. If a peer support worker, for example, is on a team, how would that person know that that's their role? That's a great question. I mean, often, more often than not, the person working in that role would introduce themselves as a peer support worker or another provider would identify them as a peer support worker. But the challenge with that as well is, is that sometimes the providers, the other providers on the team may not value the peer supporter as well because of this inherent discrimination, this inherent stigma that we've been talking about, as well as not really seeing the value of the life experience and the life context. So they might not introduce that peer supporter in terms of how this is overseen, how this is regulated, that is different state to state, agency to agency. Would you say there's a growing recognition of the importance of a role like this peer support worker? 
Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the peer supporters were, were recently mentioned in, in Biden's unity agenda, as well as, you know, been, it's been a, a top priority to, to, to ensure that, that all of these roles are able to be Medicaid funded. But one of the challenges as well with the Medicaid funding and peer supporters is, is, is that a peer supporter might be in a position where they have to disclose a person's diagnosis um, in order to file a claim for them through, through CMS. Send it through Medicaid, yeah. Through Medicaid. And I think another, another piece as well that can be a challenge is documentation, documenting what, what people do. Are peer supporters put in a role where they're policing other mad, disabled psychiatric survivors? And that is a conversation we are in right now as behavioral health expansion is huge across the United States. And I think it goes without saying the whole concept of peer support which I really started to get introduced to when we were creating, at least in the independent living movement in the 70s, was disabled people, many of whom had physical disabilities or other forms of disabilities and mental health uh, disabilities that may not have been recognized and supported appropriately and how to help support people who had disabilities who were being peer support workers. Because for many of the peer support workers, they also needed to be getting some guidance and advice on how to work with people who were potentially in crisis and having other issues arising. Do you see this as something which is now more ingrained in the training for peer support workers of how to work with people from an independent living community perspective? I think we're starting to get there more. I think, you know, something that happened, you know, when I really think about the consumer survivor ex-patient ex-inmate movement was that there was this idea of stepping away from a model that viewed us as deficit, primarily from the mental health industrial complex and systems. And there was an association of deficit with disability that I saw and, and that I've come to recognize. And it's like, the education of a social model of disability and understanding that society is inaccessible to us and needs to become more accessible as well as celebrate and honor our identities, to have pride in our identities, right? Those are conversations that I think are still, still emergent and still important, but I see them happening. So what are your dreams for the MAD Liberation Movement? What does it look like and feel like to you down the road? I think my dream from the Mad Liberation Movement is that Mad Liberation isn't this thing that people are like, what is that? You know, what do you mean by that? You know, what do you mean you identify as a mad person? You know, uh, because for me, identifying as a mad person, the reason why I do is, is because people do perceive me as dangerous, as different already as a brown Hispanic person, you know, who has had police involvement, all sorts of things throughout their life. So there's an inextricable link and a reclaiming that is happening there that I think is, is super important. But what mad liberation means to me is freeing our minds from the incarcerating and punishing circumstances that we're, we're, we're trying to come to terms with uh, as a result of, of the mental health system, reinstitutionalization as we see it now, and institutionalization um, and warehousing of disabled people we've seen historically. So what I think about Mad Liberation is celebrating identity, but also us fighting more for human rights in the context of, of mental health. 
maybe not so much in the context of just treatment, but also fighting for, for, for the context of our identity and our personhood in society. And recognizing the strengths and contributions that people make on a daily basis. So we're getting to the end of our program, but I wanted to ask you another question. What do you do to have fun? <laughs> what brings you joy? Oh, I love this question. I love this question so much. Well, I do a lot of different things for joy. I mean, I know it's weird, but like, I love different types of food. I know that you call hot dogs uh, Frankfurt, is it? Frankfurters. Frankfurters, yeah. And you know, like, so like exploring new types of food is a big part. I love, I love art. Like, um, I am an artist at heart. So like, I do a lot of drawing. I do a lot of writing. I do portraits of disability rights activists and psychiatric survivor activists, but also, you know, um, throughout my life, I've done uh, comic book illustration and comic book inking, animation, all sorts of different stuff. I like to spend time with my friends. I, I like to dance, even though I dance poorly. <laughs> I love to play chess. And they can teach me. I'd love to. Well, it's been great to talk with you. I'd also like to thank Devin Turk. Devin is a student at Goucher, and he's doing work with Kylie and me. And one of his projects was to help us also identify people that he felt would be good to interview. And when he said Vesper, we're like, yeah, we've been thinking the same thing. So this is great. So thank you very much, Devin, for your work. Thank you so much, Judy. And thank you so much, Vesper. And thank you, everybody, for listening to our program. We will have information which will allow you to learn more about the work that Vesper is doing and other organizations that are working in the psychiatric survivor mad liberation movement. And please pay attention to what is going on in New York and California, being supportive of disability rights organizations that are fighting against incarceration. So thank you both very much. Now it's time for Ask Judy, a segment where Judy answers questions sent in by listeners. So Devin, thank you so much for the work that you've done. We're so lucky that Kylie graduated from Goucher and knew of this program and was able to uh, get you and Quinn to be interns uh, for us. We've learned a lot from you and from Quinn and your work, I hope, has been beneficial for your future. Absolutely, Judy. So my question is, as seeing as how you've been at the forefront of a lot of change in the disability rights movement, uh, you've been a part of profound legislative and social changes. What do you think is the next great ambition for the disability rights movement that you hope that our communities can take on? So I need to say that I don't feel we're at a next. I don't feel like we've completed what we need to do as far as implementing existing legislation is concerned. So that's very important to me that as someone acquires a disability, regardless of their age, they need to know about what these laws do, both federal and state laws. If you don't know what the laws allow, then you don't know how to benefit from them. So I think there is this continual need to ensure, one, that people who are protected, in this case, with legislation around disability, but it refers to other uh, legislation that would protect the rights of other groups of people, 
But in the case of disabled people, we need to make sure that children and their families are learning about the different pieces of legislation, are able to comfortably benefit from the legislation. And by that, I mean, in many cases, like if we think about education of disabled children, parents frequently need to be able to be strong advocates, which is not something which is easy for most people. So needing to know your rights, needing to get support to be an advocate, regardless of the law or the age of the person. Then I think we're needing also to really uh, look at what mechanisms are out there to deal with enforcement. So that means that governmental agencies, federal and state agencies, need to have sufficient budgets, staff to be able to investigate when complaints are filed so that there can be repercussions when there may be a pattern in practice about how laws are not being implemented, whether it's in housing or employment or education or transportation, whatever it may be. So I would say it's not a next step, but it's a continual step that people uh, need to know who are disabled people under the various laws, because there's different definitions, whether you're looking at 504 and ADA or social security or, you know, whatever it may be, and that there needs to be a mechanism to help people learn. And there are not sufficient programs out there that allow people to learn about uh, what their rights are. So that's very important. And I would say for social security, work disincentives is a very big issue that while there have been some changes made over the last 20 years, a lot more needs to be made. Not all of it needs to be legislative, and some of it needs to be state as well as federal. But again, effective implementation is something which is critical. I would also say that, you know, we're needing to continue looking forward at allowing people to understand the breadth of disability, because many, many people with disabilities have invisible disabilities, and people may feel that, oh, they wouldn't be covered. So frequently, someone with diabetes, for example, presumes that they wouldn't be covered by any of these laws, which is not true, as well as you know, mental health disabilities or whatever it may be. So this issue of knowledge is important. I guess one big area looking at the future, which is the next minute from now, helping people feel comfortable owning all of who they are, helping people learn more about the legislative process so they can be fighting for budgets that provide appropriate financing for staffing and investigations. I mean, there's so many areas in the future. Media, I think, is critically important. Representation of disabled people. We need to make sure that disability is not represented as a tragedy. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much, Judy, for your answer. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to The Human Perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow Judy on Twitter at Judith Human and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective. 
If you want to find out more information about this episode's guest or resources relating to the discussion, check out the description of this episode or visit judithhuman.com. You can also find a shortened video version of this interview on Judy's YouTube channel, dropping a week after this podcast is published. Otherwise, be sure to check back every other Wednesday for a new podcast episode. The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yontero, and Warren. The outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee.